Hello, and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 23 on May 12th, 2017, coming to you out of the Low Tech Recording Room in Cooksville, Wisconsin. Thanks for joining us. Today, we'll be talking with Assistant Professor Shanti Morel-Hart of the Faculty of Social Sciences at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. We'll be talking about her article, Food and Resilience Under Apocalyptic Conditions. This will be part one of a two-part series. We'll also have institute updates and an event calendar. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at low underscore techno. Like us on Facebook, find us on Instagram, and check out our website, lowtechinstitute.org. There you can find both of our podcasts and the blog. I have with me via WhatsApp uh, Assistant Professor Shanti Morel-Hart of the Department of Anthropology at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. Could you briefly introduce yourself? I first found out about you through your uh, article, Foodways and Resilience Under Apocalyptic Conditions, which uh, we'll talk more about that topic throughout the the, uh, interview today. But uh, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your area of interest. Absolutely. Uh, so, um, for starters, I guess I'm I'm a, an anthropologist. I'm an archaeologist within anthropology, and then furthermore, within archaeology, um, I'm a paleoethnobotanist, which means I'm someone who studies human-plant interactions using um, actual plant residues. So, kind of these uh, these deep-time plant residues that we recover from different kinds of materials, from artifacts, even from human teeth, from sediments. And coprolites. Don't forget the coprolites. And coprolites. We do not want to leave out the coprolites. Never, never leave aside the coprolites. So I'm, I'm taking these food residues. I'm taking up these ideas about the, the plants that people were using in the deep past. And then I'm building up arguments about, on the one hand, food ways. What are people eating? How are they getting it? Even if I could, uh, their actual recipes. And then on the other hand, um, human interactions with the broader ecology, with the broader environment. And then I, I take the ideas about foodways and ethnoecology, uh, obviously really strongly interrelated. And I've started to consider how these narratives that we get from archaeology are making their way into public discourse or public policy in these different ways. So where, you know, where does the paleo diet come from, for example? And the short answer is not actually archaeology, but that's a, that's a whole other topic. All my friends who have been on paleo uh, still drank beer, and I tried to point out to them that that was not... <laughs> paleo and they they kept drinking you know and mm-hmm. the, the great the great irony there it's not paleo according to the diet as it's framed and mm-hmm. the actual the, the paleo diet as it's laid out in the website and the mm-hmm. books um but we do have a lot of evidence that people in the very deep past were consuming fermented grains at the very least whether or not that was just straight up beer is is the question but mm-hmm. yeah i believe even from uh, neanderthal teeth Although I may be making that up, we've got evidence of cooked starches from Neanderthal teeth, uh, oh, cooked cool. grasses of different kinds, but not necessarily fermented ones. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to overstate the work of Amanda Henry and other people who are working on that. Well, and why go to fermenting grains, which is a little more complicated than fermenting fruit juice? Exactly, exactly. Which is, you know, one way or another, it seems most societies have sorted out some way of fermenting something, whether it's milk or fruits or grains. Oh, for sure. We're, you know, surprisingly clever about turning things into booze. Yeah, that seems to hit a lot of the pleasure centers in the brain. There's a big incentive, I would imagine. (laughs) (laughs) 
So the underlying premise of our research and, um, you know, if uh, we have new listeners maybe who are fans of yours who are coming to listen to the interview today, uh, just real briefly, um, the underlying premise of what we do is that uh, we recognize that fossil fuels are a finite resource and really we should be thinking about now how we should feed, clothe, and house ourselves once this fuel becomes too scarce. Uh, that might be in uh, 10 years, it might be in 100 years, but you know we should have those plans in place. And I think one of the biggest potential problems with that is our modern food system is completely dependent on fossil fuels from fertilizers and mechanized farm equipment to harvest, transport, processing, sale, preservation, pre- preparation, everything. It's all underwritten by fossil fuels right now. And if we are, take those fossil fuels away, we have a global catastrophe. We're not the first society that has potentially faced a food shortage. And like I said before, your, your article, Food Ways and Resilience Under Apocalyptic Conditions, really piqued my interest. Um, and that's in the Journal of Culture, Agriculture, Food, and Environment, which I'm going to link to on the podcast page. Um, so my, I guess my first question is, if you've looked at these societies um, across time and space um, and how they cope with food shortage, what are the range of reactions? I don't know if there is a spectrum or how do you see it? There is a range of reactions. And the, one of the things I would want to sort of frame this with to start, um, and I'm going to draw a little bit from... Amanda Logan's excellent work in Ghana, she looked at issues of food scarcity over time. And one of the things that she pointed towards, and the thing that I would like to point towards, is this distinction that we could draw between, for example, food precarity, food scarcity, and then, you know, sort of full-blown famine or this, Mm. you know, widespread, prolonged food shortage. Um, And I do this because when we talk about these different societies, you know, whether it's in the deep past or historical past or in present, you've got this some degree of history of people having to cope with some measure of food precarity in some way or another. And so when we think about all these different reactions out there in different societies at different points in time, um, a lot of that draws from previous sort of deep memory within the society or perhaps fairly recent memory within the society. And, you know, in the U.S., we could talk about the Great Depression era. We could talk about um, how people coped with food shortage then. We talk about, you know, the even the sort of planting of, of Liberty Gardens and such mm. during the uh, various war efforts. So people, you know, coping in some way or another, making do with what they've got, drawing on resources they perhaps didn't normally draw on, or developing new ways of sort of coping with food precarity in some way or another. So if you've got folks with a history of having to negotiate, not having a six-course meal uh, every day, Mm -hmm. um, or even one meal every day, Mm -hmm. then it makes it much easier for societies, on the one hand, at the sort of state level, to come up with strategies for dealing with food precarity, for dealing with a more extreme food shortage. Um, And then at the individual level, for people as individuals to cope um, with food precarity in some way. So again, if you've got some history there, even if it's not a history of sort of extreme famine, even if you don't have these kind of extreme examples to draw on in terms of you know how people cope with that in the in the recent past, chances are there's something somewhere you can draw on from a more perhaps a position of not extreme issues, but again more mild food precarity. Mm. Um, and I think this 
this varies from society to society. This scales up or down. So it, it becomes less a question of society by society. Is it industrialized? Is it non-industrialized? How do they cope with uh, food scarcity as much as it is just a question of what's in the historical past and how have these memories been preserved? How have these potential strategies and tactics uh, been preserved over time? Okay, so it's not so much a factor of if it's a large-scale industrial society like, you know, the U.S. and Canada versus, you know, um, Bushmen or something. It's more about what is in their historical or cultural memory of how to deal with food scarcity rather than the size and complexity of the society necessarily. Right, and where we do see sort of sharp breaks, um, I mean, we can talk about it, you know, kind of over the course of generations, but we do see these sharp, sharp breaks are where we've got instances where entire societies were shifted around under Mm -hmm. processes of colonization and were forced to get rid of a lot of their different kind of traditional food practices, whether Mm. that was the ingredients and the surrounding landscape, whether it was the ways that they were um, producing their crops, um, whether it was the recipes themselves, um, just any way where there's a sort of uh, forced transformation of foodways more Broadway and perhaps relationships with the environment. Then this sort of prolonged colonial process, that's where we see the sort of sharp loss um, that's less marked in societies where you have some sort of social continuity, where you're not having to negotiate with the powers of, of colonization. Which would pose an interesting question for us Um in uh, in North America, where many many of our uh, ancestors came over from a variety of different places, and uh, so I've always noted the lack of consistent uh, foodways in the United States, where we kind of just borrow and you know we don't have a Mediterranean type diet or a you know um, a Mexican type diet or a uh, Italian you know we we just grab what we want from different ones, and one night we eat from one foodway and another from another, and I wonder you know I've wondered has that contributed perhaps to obesity or problems we don't have a consistent food system but i had never thought about it in terms of famine or food precarity perhaps because we don't have that consistent food way we maybe don't have a cohesive strategy to adapt like someone who's lived in one area for you know thousands of years uh, might know the go-to famine foods for example right and even in a sort of given landscape there'll be a lot of different ways that people look at it. So um, part of the region, or one of the regions where I work is in the Maya area, uh, mostly in the Yucatan Peninsula in the north and the south. And in that area, I've worked with a number of different contemporary communities, and there are a lot of different relationships with the local environment. So in one place, wherever, and you know, part of my interest being ancient plants and what was on the landscape, I'm always asking people, you know, oh, what was this plant used for? Do you use this today? What do you mm-hmm. know about this plant? Can you eat this thing or not? Most of the time, the answer is no. Please don't put that in your mouth. But sometimes <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, actually, that's okay if you cook that down. Oh, yeah, that's okay. There are these different things that you can do with that plant, and maybe you don't want to eat it regularly. Maybe that's a famine food, but it is technically edible. Um, but that said, uh, there are, there's a suite of plants that's pretty consistent from place to place and in the communities many different communities where i've worked there are a lot of different understandings about what you should do with those plants and the the obvious go-to would be medicinally you know what is this used for oh you you know you can turn that into a poultice you can you know use that as sort of style for a wound oh you can drink that it helps with diabetes really wide range of, of sort of perspectives on a single plant as you move 
across the landscape. Um, and the same is true of food. So there have been places where people are like, oh, this is delicious. Yeah, you know, you can use this as seasoning. Oh, yeah, this is a, a great thing that you can eat if you're just walking around the jungle and you want a snack. And other communities would be like, no, why would you eat that? That's ridiculous. <laughs> so it's, you know, there's a lot of variability. Part of that may have to do with the, the sort of process of, of colonization to the degree that it really hit people in different parts of the Yucatan. Um, in other cases, it really seems to be just what sort of preserved over time the, in the lore of a people, what, what becomes traditional, what's seen as outlandish. I mean, there, there's a lot to account for that, and it might be tastes, sort of preferred foods, and it might be, um, you know, sort of uh, ecological expediency. It might be, you know, any number of factors, um, social issues even, you know, what's used ritualistically versus what you – can eat every day. You've got this sort of wide range. And so um, that said, the having this sort of deep historical memory, even if it's preserved for many uh, generations, you move one town over and that could be a really different perspective, even on what's edible. Well, I think one of the most famous uh, examples of uh, famine foods, if not in the Maya area and archaeology in general, is uh, Pulistan's work on the Ramon uh, nut, which I think he did that work in Yucatan, did he not? Yeah, yeah. So I'm well familiar with, you know, as as it was termed in some circles, the Ramon controversy. Mm-hmm. You know, surprisingly not controversial. I mean, on a scale of, you know, topics that are not controversial to highly, highly controversial, I think I put it at about a three. But still, <laughs> it was it was described as the Ramon controversy. And it always uh, struck me that, uh, you know, the Maya live, there are these Ramon trees, and during times of famine, they could... Pulisan showed they could easily gather plenty of them to meet their caloric needs. And that always made me think of uh, oak trees in the United States because we have, in many places, enough oak trees uh, for quite a lot of uh, calories to be gathered, but nobody thinks about using acorn meal as an actual food. I wonder if that would, uh, if, you know, the knowledge of that was known and we had some sort of food crisis if you'd see people in public parks uh, competing with the squirrels like I did last year to uh, collect some acorns. Right. I think that's that's a really excellent parallel. I think on the one hand, in terms of how people view these foods, in ancient times, people have been, in both of these cases, were consuming these more than in historic or contemporary times. Um, on the other hand, in both cases, they don't have a great flavor. They're both yeah. pretty mealy, not completely unpalatable, but just mealy. That's the best way I could describe it. And so I think, yeah, the in in the uh, in the areas where you've got acorns, that's a fantastic food resource. I have buddies who've tinkered with revitalizing traditional food ways for their communities if they're coming from First Nations or mm. just, you know, had some sort of general curiosity about it. So I've heard stories of people packing, and this is something you can actually do, packing the tanks of their toilets with acorns. Oh, that's clever. Because it'll eventually leach out all of the tannins. So every that's time you clever. flush your toilet, it leaches away some more of the tannins, and eventually you can, you know, go back to the tank and retrieve these acorns, grind them up, do whatever you want. Sure. But that said, once you get those acorns, you're, you're not necessarily going to in this world of culinary delights they are they are pretty bland and the the same is true of of the ramon in the in the maya area and a little bit beyond is that you've got this food resource high caloric content some nice proteins in there it's got some lipids in there you know they're Mm -hmm. they're 
these basic sort of nutritional needs that the Ramon meets. Um, the Brosimum alicastrum, I'm just going to throw that out. But when it comes down to it, the excitement that people feel about eating them is pretty low. So in some places, and that's, that's a great example of one of these foods where in some places people are like, oh, yeah, that's what we give to the pigs. In other yep. places, people are like, oh, yeah, never eat that thing. It's pretty gross. Mm-hmm. In other places, they're like, well, if I were really desperate, I'd eat it. In other places, they're like, oh, yeah, on occasion, I'll take that and I'll grind it up and I'll I'll add it to um, the masa, add it to the, um, uh, the sort of corn dough that I use mm-hmm. to make tortillas. So you have people, you know, having a range of reactions to this, you know, pretty humble food resource. And yeah, having having knowledge that it is a food resource would be helpful were there to be some kind of serious food shortage. But for many people, it's just, yeah, it's not it's not something they get excited about. Yeah, I have a couple pounds of acorns languishing in my freezer in my fridge that I'm going to have to grind up and uh, put into my uh, bread dough or something like that to stretch it out to at least use the calories now that I've spent all the time collecting and, and opening them. That's right. You've, you've expended all those calories. Might as well replenish them. But That's yeah, right. I, if I can just point you toward that toilet tank mode That's... of leaching your acorns, making them palatable, but, you know, it's, it, it comes highly recommended. Let's see. Uh, I'm just going to shift gears here. Uh, so you've talked somewhat about um, the link between hunger and social unrest, and I think uh, maybe in popular culture we'd best know about this from the Snickers commercial where they show a really angry person who's you know reacting, overreacting to whatever situation, and uh, they're kind of tapping into this idea of hangry, the portmanteau of hungry and angry that I think many of us have experienced. Um, you know, my significant other sometimes mentions to me if I get a little uh, testy, are you hungry? Well, yeah, I'm hungry, but what does that have to do with it? Anyway, um, and in class, one of my favorite professor-type jokes is that the mass noun for starving villagers is mob. Can you, can you talk a little about the link between hunger and social unrest in uh, maybe a variety of uh, social contexts? How, how does that look across human history? Yeah, and I think, um, again, as we look from society to society, there's a wide range of reactions, and it seems less to do even with large-scale versus small-scale, and more just to do with, on the one hand, the individuals that are comprising mm. um, that, that group of people. On the other hand, you know, historically, how have things been dealt with? So that said, you know, you've, you have the full gamut from... Social cohesion, people draw together and really work together to try and solve these problems. So, so sort of social friction of, of some kind or another. So, you know, the extreme example that I think a lot of people would point to is anthropophagy or the sort of deliberate consumption of human flesh by other human beings. And this, this is something that has been documented extensively to have. There's a real ritual significance in some places. It's not just about caloric intake. Um, which was what had been suggested by Marvin Harris many years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but rather, it's got this sort of deep symbolic significance. That said, we do have examples. I mean, the Donner Party would be an mm. easy go-to. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of what took place at Jamestown uh, in mm-hmm. Virginia would be a, a sort of easy thing to point to, where we've got people consuming other people because they're running out of food and they're desperate. Um, so you've got, in some cases, these very small groups of people perhaps fit in with these larger social connections in different ways, really turning to this food resource or what comes to be in their minds a food resource out of complete desperation. So that would be your sort of more extreme example. Mm. Um, But again, we've got cases of of sort of social cohesion, people trying to 
negotiate a way to, you know, ration their food stores, develop new strategies for collecting food, growing food, processing food, Mm -hmm. um, and even sort of recategorizing what they consider to be food in in the first place. Mm. So (laughs) I laugh about your your use of hangry. It's like this let them eat Snickers sort of scenario. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think you've got got this room for social unrest. You've got room for social cohesion. Mm. Um, People draw together to help their weakest in some cases. In other cases, they're drawing straws and they're eating somebody. Mm. Um, But again, that's putting it really extreme terms. I think we see society to society over time is fairly well documented in most disaster films, including zombie films. You can imagine, like, what do you see people doing? Oh, they're working together. They're scrounging for food and they're trying to make it they're just trying to survive and they're they're doing it together in other cases you see people battling over scraps Mm -hmm. so i think you've got this this full sort of range of reactions documented um does food precarity lead to social unrest it would be crazy to say no but we see a lot of other reasons for social unrest as well that have nothing to do with food scarcity food precarity or even famine Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, especially, you know, contemporary in the United States, we have had, I mean, I don't mean to minimize, there are certainly people who have food precarity in the United States today, but on the national scale, we haven't had much food precarity, and yet we still have, you know, instances of social unrest and upheaval, perhaps not on the scale of, say, the French Revolution, uh, but certainly right. some upheaval. Perhaps we would have had yeah, more absolutely. without food. I don't know. It's hard to say. One uh, yeah, society I think about a lot with uh, food precarity is the uh, the Inca or anyone who's lived in the in the uh, path of El Nino because you know they would have this unexpected every two to eleven years they'd have this unexpected reversal of their ecological systems and so they would have to almost build into their system a really diverse food way like the vertical archipelago that many people have heard of if the crops in one area fail, your family in another area would be able to supply you with food. And then in the next year, if their crops fail, you could provide them with food. So it was really a a wide diversity of plants and animals they were using, and then a formal, cohesive uh, social unit to share them. Right. And I think that's that's an interesting example, um, especially because there's a great article out there, and I am not recalling the, the name of the author. I really wish I could. But the, the author addresses sort of the differences between at the elite level um, sort of Inca cuisine versus at the elite level Aztec cuisine. Mm. And the sort of general premise was for the Incas, it was more about food quantity. So they were real kind of meat and potatoes folks, literally potatoes and the meat in this case was usually yam or alpaca. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for the Aztecs, there was this expectation of just this enormous diversity of cuisine. Mm-hmm. So when you have these sort of feasting contexts, uh, again, at the very highest levels of Inca society versus Aztec society, you've got this huge focus on meat and potatoes and beer. Sorry, did I neglect to say the beer? Can't, also corn beer, chicha. chicha. Yeah. So you've got this, yeah, so there's this focus on quantity, just quantity, quantity, quantity. And then for the Aztecs, you've got this focus on diversity. So you have descriptions of the Spaniards first arrived in Tenochtitlan. They're getting feasted with this huge diversity of dishes. Um, you know, some of them... You know, we're describing these hundreds of dishes, which is probably an exaggeration. And there are plenty of exaggerations in the Spanish chronicles, but sure. in this case, you know, what they are representing is like this enormous diversity, all sorts of dishes that can say, contained insects, dishes that contain just this huge variety of plants, some of them wild, some of them cultivated. 
you can't point to the very kind of highest levels of cuisine as being representative of an entire society. Sure. But certainly for the Aztec elites, there was a little bit more sort of resilience built in in terms of what is it possible to eat or, mm. you know, what, what do we already think of as, as fitting into our cuisine mm-hmm. versus perhaps the Inca, again, at the most elite levels, not as you, you know, address um, all these other segments of society that we're not eating their meat and potatoes and beer for multiple meals every day. Sure. Um, but yeah, certainly there's there's less less sort of resilience in that sense, um, perhaps built into the highest levels of Inca society than the highest levels of Aztec society. Mm. Stay tuned to next week's podcast when we conclude this conversation by talking about what these lessons from the past and ethnographic societies can tell us about how our own industrialized society might react to food shortage in the future. Now for a brief recap of what we have going on around the Institute this week. Our first workshop is this weekend. We're going to be running a basic carpentry workshop on Saturday and Sunday where we have folks come over and learn the ins and outs of hammers and nails and screws and saws, etc., etc., and uh, we'll be working on raised beds in our garden. If you'd be interested in hosting a workshop at your own house, uh, please get in touch, lowtechinstitute at gmail.com. We also are putting in our baseline garden. Although we're going to be doing a lot of experimentation in coming years with uh, different types of fertilizer, changing the pH of the soil, different growing techniques from ethnographic studies across the uh, modern and ancient world, this year we're just growing vegetables in a conventional fashion, I guess, uh, what one would expect to find in a North American garden. Um, so we have tomatoes going in and corn and potatoes, peas and other things, uh, and we're doing it in a fairly conventional way. And this will be a baseline data. What sort of yield are we getting from what sort of square footage? Uh, and then we can compare that to future years to see what techniques uh, that we're gleaning from the ethnographic record are more effective uh, than what we're doing in the conventional way now. And this is keeping us very busy, and uh, so we haven't been able to run as many of the experiments that we'd like to, uh, but we are making good progress. That's all we have this week. The Low Tech Podcast is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Technology Recording Room. Our intro music was Swinging in the Seventh off the album Songs for Paris by Dana Boulay. That song is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Non-Commercial License, and this podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share Alike License, meaning you're free to use it and share it as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio, and if you enjoy this free podcast, please help repay us by sharing it with a friend. You can find more information about the Low Technology Institute at lowtechinstitute, that's all one word, dot org. You can follow us on Twitter at low underscore techno and reach me directly at lowtechinstitute at gmail.com. I'd be happy to have your feedback. Thanks and take care.